This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Brigham Young University professor Jay Buckley teaches a class about the Lewis and Clark expedition across the American West after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. So today we're going to be looking at the Lewis and Clark expedition and discussing um, some of the ramifications of this most important expedition. Some people have classified the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition and compared it to the odyssey of the the Greek tragedies, just like the Civil War, sometimes seen as America's Iliad uh, of that great epic battle. And so this great voyage of the Lewis and Clark expedition will be quite significant and important. Uh, A few years ago, the Atlantic Monthly did a survey of the top 100 most influential figures in American history. And Lewis and Clark make the list at 70. And what I find interesting is they're the only names on the entire list where they're listed together. So it's almost like they're inseparable. Uh, And the Smithsonian did did one just five years ago on the 100 most significant Americans. And Meriwether Lewis and William Clark again made that list and they were also hooked together. And Sacagawea, who accompanied the expedition also made it. So this young teenage Shoshone woman um, was considered one of the 100 most significant Americans. So there is a, um, an impression across the United States that Lewis and Clark expedition was significant and that the people that went along are important for our country's history. Today we're gonna discuss the expedition in three main facets. We're gonna look at it as um, the causes and historical context, the event itself, um, and the significance of the expedition. Wanted to start out with this quote from Thomas Jefferson. This was in a letter he wrote George Rogers Clark, who was the older brother of William Clark and this was written in 1780, so it's just a few years before the, it's just a few years after the um, independence, Declaration of Independence, and a few years before the Constitution is ratified. And he says, we shall form to the American Union a barrier against the dangerous extension of the British province of Canada and add to the empire of liberty an extensive and fertile country thereby converting dangerous enemies into valuable friends. So even during the time of the Articles of Confederation, Jefferson is sending letters to various peoples uh, to kind of formulate this empire of liberty that he had in mind. Now Jefferson was a a child of the Enlightenment. Um, He knew the significance of Enlightenment through exploration that people on the ground seeing things and writing them down and recording those would be very valuable for science. And so his attempts to explore what became uh, the United States um, are legendary. These are just three of the attempts that he made. First was to George Rogers Clark in that letter that we just um, read. He was a military soldier who had won some campaigns during the American Revolution. And he said um, that he wanted him to lead this expedition. And Clark replied that 
he was not in very good health. But if he decided to do it in the future, he should think about asking his little brother, William, who will eventually join the Lewis and Clark expedition. So that's pretty cool. The second was John Ledyard. Uh, this explorer had an interesting idea that you could explore um, the western part of the Americas by coming from Russia. And so he actually tried to cross Russia and go through Kamchatka and Alaska to come down the coast, but he was stopped by Catherine the Great, uh, one of the great Tsarinas from um, Russian history. Andre Michaud was a French botanist, and Jefferson, as a founding member of the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, um, got enough support to try to get him to at least find the flora of the West and bring that knowledge back to his friends at the Philosophical Society. Unfortunately, all three of these expeditions um, do not reach their uh, zenith, nor are they successful in the, in the terms that Jefferson had hoped. When you look at a, a European depiction of North America in 1800, you see that the Spanish have been quite active along the California coast. Uh, there are some French and Spanish communities throughout the south and southeast. And then the, um, the pink indicates areas um, established or settled by the British in the, the colonies area. But Jefferson's vision of this empire of liberty was very um, powerful. You know, he, he may not have ever traveled west of the Blue Ridge Mountains, but his mind certainly traveled all the way to the Pacific. And in 1800, he learned from his friends in France that there had been a secret treaty at San Ildefonso in which the French had regained all of the area that had formerly been known as the Louisiana Purchase that had been given to Spain during the French and Indian War. And so this was pretty significant because France had been a growing empire and now was led by one of the great modern military figures, Napoleon. And so now there's not a, a crumbling, weak Spanish empire on America's western flank, but an aggressive, militaristic French uh, opponent or potential opponent on the flank. The other thing that um, changed his way of thinking was the publication of a book. You know Jefferson loved books. Uh, he collected thousands of them. He went into great expense and debt to do so. Uh, and when the Library of Congress um, burned down during the War of 1812, Jefferson actually gave much of his private library to form the corpus of the new Library of Congress. And as you go there, you can visit it and see some of the collections that Jefferson donated to the library. Um, but he was very, very keen on this book by Alexander Mackenzie because Voyages from Montreal to the Pacific uh, was a Northwestern fur trader's account of traveling along the rivers and streams to the Pacific Ocean. And even though it was too far north into Canada to be effective for year-round travel, this greatly intrigued Jefferson because Mackenzie had postulated to the British that they could take control of the entire fur trade of North America if they put a, um, a monopolistic control 
into something like either the Hudson's Bay Company or the Northwest Company to take this over. Jefferson did not want America to miss out on the fur bounties of the American West. He also wanted to have this utilitarian knowledge that the Enlightenment demanded and expected. And with the 1800 election, he had now been catapulted into becoming the second president of the United States of America, third president, excuse me. And his geopolitical issues and intrigues with outside and inside forces almost compelled him to do something about it. So he sends messages and diplomats to France to ask Napoleon if he would be willing to sell what became known as the Louisiana Purchase. And it took several years for this to happen, but eventually it did on the 30th of April, 1803. This tract of land stretching from the Gulf of Mexico to the Canadian Shield was 828,000 square miles of land, draining much of what flowed into the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. This was a huge territory in which the native people still claimed right of occupancy but America was purchasing the right of discovery from France. Jefferson announced this to the American people on the 4th of July in 1803 and saw this as a great boon for the country to double its size like this. He said, I look to the duplication of this area as a great achievement to the mass of happiness which is to, to ensue. And then postulated, is it not better that the opposite bank of the Mississippi should be settled by our own brethren and children than by strangers of another family? So he's ha having this vision now of America expanding even beyond the boundaries of the Mississippi, which had been the boundary line in 1783 at the conclusion of the American Revolution. And this enlightenment through exploration was to take a number of um, turns, but most significant were the um, scientific questioning, scientific method, and real-time reasoning that would occur with explorers that were on the ground. And his idea for this empire of liberty was one in which America would spread, perhaps from sea to shining sea, but at this time that was quite a dangerous proposition because there was a French philosopher by the name of Montesquieu who said that republics could not exist in very large um, continental ways because the further away you were from the periphery, the more prone or apt those um, fringes would spin off from the center. And so the question of how big a republic could get and still function was still undetermined. And so America became this great experiment for the expansion of freedom and democracy and equality. There were a number of explorers that went uh, west during Jefferson's um, tenure in office. Um, we will focus on this red line where the Lewis and Clark expedition embark from, um, well, they embark from really the falls of the Ohio up here all the way down to St. Louis and then the St. Louis portion to the Columbia. But you'll also notice that Zebulon Pike went on several expeditions. He explored the headwaters of the Mississippi, arriving at Lake Itasca. 
And he also went on a southwestern expedition to find the headwaters of the Red River and eventually was arrested by the Spanish and transported through Spain and back around to Natchitoches. The Freeman Custis expedition embarked up the Red River and there was another expedition by Hunter and Dunbar that went up the Washita. And there was another expedition proposed to go up the Platte River, but it never um, happened. So there were lots of um, designs to try to explore these major river systems. And one of the reasons why the Lewis and Clark expedition is more famous than all of these others is because some of the others were actually turned back by the Spanish. Uh, in the case of Pike, he was arrested uh, along with his men and taken under house arrest down to Santa Fe and then down to Chihuahua. Um, the Freeman and Custis expedition was turned back by the Spanish. Um, the Hunter and Dunbar expedition went to the hot springs in Arkansas. They had some R&R there with the minerals and then returned home. And the Stephen Long expedition won't occur until 1819. So it's, it's down the road. Are you aware that uh, Lewis and Clark, um, there were seven, or excuse me, there were four different attempts by the Spanish to arrest Lewis and Clark. And they sent out expeditions to, um, to apprehend them. And they came within a few hundred miles on two occasions um, to nearly arrest them. The Jefferson's instructions to Lewis um, were quite clear. The object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as by its course and communication with the water of the Pacific Ocean may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce. And this was um, Jefferson's letter to um, Lewis that became kind of his marching orders. Lewis knew that, I mean, this letter to um, Lewis was epic. It's over six pages long. It has a whole list of things that Jefferson wants him to do. And so he writes a letter to his friend, William Clark, who he had served under in a campaign in the 1790s, asking him to join him as a co-commander. And he says, if there's anything under these circumstances in this enterprise which would induce you to participate with me in its fatigues, its dangers, its honors, believe me, there's no man on earth with whom I should feel equal pleasure in sharing them as with yourself. So this was an invitation for Clark to join him in an equal capacity even though the president and the secretary of war had not given permission for that rank. And Clark wrote back and said, I cheerfully join you in an official character as mentioned in your letter to partake of all the dangers, difficulties and fatigues. And I anticipate the honors and rewards of the result of such an enterprise should we be successful in accomplishing it. So this was a pretty exciting time for um, Lewis and Clark as they began preparing. Uh, now that the official news had been released in July um, for the following year's exploration. And you can see this journey that Lewis and Clark will head on. This is about 8,000 miles um, and it's going to be a very long trip, 864 days that they'll be gone. 
So this was a major expedition and it required a lot of logistical preparation. One of the first things they did was try to find out about the region. So they gathered maps that had been published about the area. And I love this map by Nicholas King. It's called the map of the western part of North America. And you can see that the Mississippi River and the Great Lakes and even the route of um, the Canadians is quite well defined, as is the Pacific Coast, where Vancouver and Captain Cook and others had mapped and charted the, the Pacific Coast. But I love this word right in the middle. I, I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of maps in my life, and this is the only time I've found this word. I've blown it up so you can read it, and it says conjectural. Basically, that means we don't know what's there. Uh, and this is amazing because um, Lewis and Clark are pretty much, they know where their destination is, but they're not quite sure what they're going to encounter in the interim. There were all kinds of stories of what they might find. They might find exotic animals or blue-eyed uh, Welchmen living up near the Mandan lost tribes of Israel, mountains of silver, um, mountains of salt, a Northwest Passage, large furry uh, beaver that were six feet long. I mean, who knew what to expect in this area? So they're kind of uh, exploring naturalists that they're gonna pay attention to the flora and the fauna and the landscape and the native peoples to try to understand better what's going on in that region. Now, they also knew that if they got onto the Great Plains and there weren't any trees to build boats, that they mean, may need to have another form of transportation. So Lewis devised an erector set uh, boat called the Experiment that he could put together and cover with hides um, in the event that they needed a boat and they didn't have any trees. The fact is, after they crossed um, the the Great Falls of the Missouri, they did need additional craft and they put this boat together. Um, but unfortunately, they didn't bring any duct tape or caulk to, to keep the seams from leaking. So the boat ended up not being as useful for that purpose as they'd hoped. He also made one of his important acquisitions and he bought a Newfoundland dog named Seaman. We don't know whether he was a black dog or or uh, the red and white uh, colors of the Newfies, but um, seamen will play a, an important role as kind of the mascot and pet along the journey. He and Clark meet near the Falls of the Ohio uh, on Clark's Point near Louisville, Kentucky. And in October, they start discussing the kinds of things that they will need to have a successful voyage. Clark had been in the military as a captain, uh, or as a lieutenant, excuse me, and uh, Lewis was now formally a captain. Um, they kept up the charade that they had both become captains, and so they refer to one another as captain, even though Clark's not promoted until later on. Clark bid his family a fond farewell uh, his family lived at the Falls of the Ohio in, in uh, Kentucky, which had been a, pro a province or a county of Virginia until it became a state in the 1790s. And so they head down on this keelboat or barge, more properly, 
that was about 55 feet long and could tow 10 to 12 tons of material. They also did some recruiting and as they went to the forts, some of the um, officers tried to give them the people they wanted to get out of the fort that they wanted to vote off the island, so to speak. But Lewis and Clark were quite careful in who they chose. They wanted unmarried men primarily that could participate in these dangers and fatigues. And there were only one or two married men that actually went on the expedition. Almost all of the others are single. Uh, and when all is said and done, about 55 members embark in St. Louis in May of 1804. Sergeant Gass was one of the non-commissioned officers that joined them. He passed inspection. And they built a winter encampment on the Illinois side of the river because the transfer of the Louisiana Territory had not taken place yet. So they were waiting for that formal um, ceremony to occur. During the winter, however, they were quite busy. Lewis went to St. Louis to procure supplies and Clark spent most of the time training the men in uh, shooting and also in the other things that they would need to be successful. Now there were at least five journalists who kept records of this expedition. Um, Lewis and Clark will both uh, be some of the most important writers. There are several stretches in which Lewis um, either did not write or we've lost those entries. Clark wrote all but 10 days. And even those 10 days when he was gone on a hunting trip, he summarized. So he basically accounted for every day of the expedition, which is quite remarkable. When you look at the words of Lewis and Clark and their enlisted men, they wrote more words than are contained in the Holy Bible. So this is a pretty extensive record and it's been digitized. It's available free for the public at the University of Nebraska Press. It's a national treasure because it can be searched and uh, keyword search for almost any kind of topic you can think about. Now the expedition was kind of a, a village on the move. Uh, Lewis was the, the trained scientist. Jefferson had sent him to Philadelphia to meet with his friends, the Philosophical Society and the University of Pennsylvania to receive training on how to uh, take astronomical observations and to the equipment that he would need and things like that. Clark was the soldier. Um, he's the one who made the expedition happen. He's the one day to day that's getting the boats up the river. He's making the maps. He's overseeing the men. Um, York was his body servant. Um, they had been lifelong companions and Clark took him with him uh, on the trip. They will meet Sacagawea uh, a third of the way into the expedition. We'll talk more about her when that happens. They had French voyagers that were the boatmen to take them upstream. They had regular army, and they also had civilians who were hunters and interpreters, people like uh, John Coulter and George Druillard. They carried with them um, a huge amount of trade goods to give as gifts to the tribes that they met. Um, they also had tokens of sovereignty like these peace medals with Jefferson on the 
front and the hands clasped of a native and soldier on the back with the words peace and friendship. These are called Jefferson Peace Medals and they're, they're quite famous. Um, the Mint has actually remade replicas of them uh, and I have some in my office that you can come see. They have textiles. These are Hudson's Bay blankets, uh, similar to um, the ones we've looked at before. And especially trade beads. Um, the Lewis and Clark beads here and here, but the ones that the natives like the most seem to be the blue beads. Uh, and they, they traded those at almost every stop that they went. Well, they gathered this 10 tons of material and they put it inside this barge. Uh, and Clark had also um, made some platforms that could be um, marched on by the men as they were pulling the boat upstream and also raised as defensive shields if, if their boat ever came under attack. So it's quite an ingenious um, way to do that. And here's a drawing that he made of the, of the barge. And on the 14th of May, 1804, they sent out from St. Louis under a gentle breeze. They traveled up through St. Charles and, and up the mighty Missouri River. It was a challenge to go upstream. The river flows at uh, four to 12 miles an hour, depending on what currents and eddies that you're in. And so this was a very laborious uh, way to try to get upstream. Sometimes they would row, uh, other times they would pull when they could push against a hard bottom. They could furl their sails uh, if the wind was blowing in the right direction. And of course the rivers meander and so this may only last for a short distance before you'd have to try a different method. They even attached long ropes to the front of the boats so that they could pull them from the shore. But you can imagine how, how fun that would be to try to pull this 10 ton boat upstream. In addition to the large keel boat or barge, they had two red and white pirogues. That's a French word for a fancy canoe. Um, and they became the boats that would be used for hunting expeditions, to travel faster or to set up camp or to other kinds of things because of their greater mobility. So these are the three main vessels that are hauling these 55 men. Clark was the principal cartographer and map maker. Um, he was very good at dead reckoning. He also had the gift of seeing the landscape from a horizontal port of point of view. So think about it as you're looking across the landscape horizontally, but you could see it vertical, vertically like you're looking down from an airplane. That's the kind of maps that he's drawing is from the um, top view. And so he actually does a pretty good job um, with his distances. Um, I think he was off something like 30 miles after this entire journey of just using a compass and, and estimations on how far they would travel. So it's pretty amazing. They did run into some trouble. They'd get stuck on sandbars or have trees try to tip them over. Um, but there were also moments of fun and levity where they would play the fiddle and dance around the campfire. If you did not um, 
follow the rules, there were consequences. In this case, the army required flogging. And so this involved a cat of nine tails. You can see the, the whip here, and uh, it would do massive damage to your back. And they would lay these on um, usually 25 strokes for offenses, sometimes 50, and in one case, 100. Uh, the person couldn't even walk for several days after receiving that, as you can imagine. Um, their, their trip upstream was um, full of adventure. Initially, the French knew a lot of the names that native peoples and French referred to certain places, and so that's what they were using as their names. The further along into the trip that they go, they start naming the rivers and streams for um, people that they know and friends back home, even the president of the United States. So kind of changes over the course of time. Lewis is primarily walking on the shore by himself, sometimes accompanied by seamen. Um, he's observing the flora and the fauna. He's taking detailed notes. He's gathering specimens. He's kind of being this scientific explorer. Meanwhile, Clark is running the barge and making sure that all of the expedition's moving forward. Lewis had a narrow escape with death where he came to the edge of a cliff, nearly fell off. He grabbed his hunting knife and dug it into the side of the mountain to hold himself from falling into the river. And here are the people down below that are wondering whether Lewis is gonna dead or not that night. We'll talk about how Lewis actually dies uh, next on Friday, so hopefully you're enjoying by his own hand the mysterious death of Meriwether Lewis. Um, at night they would sit down and, and write in their journals. Sometimes they would copy from one another. Um, there's a, a private who keeps record every day and so after the journey's over, Lewis and Clark will try to buy all of the journals that were kept by other individuals so that they could put this all into one record. And they're also noting the flora and fauna. In this case, Lewis and Clark discover, according to the scientific Linnaean system, 178 plants and 122 animals that were new to science. So this was quite remarkable. And you read their descriptions of how they spent half a day pouring water into a prairie dog hole up in South Dakota where they were trying to catch one. And believe it or not, they did. And they made a little cage for it and they kept it alive all winter and they sent it back to Thomas Jefferson as a gift. So can you imagine how many stamps you'd put on a prairie dog to mail it to Monticello? Well, they also encountered animals that they had heard about but didn't see, and we'll, we'll discuss the grizzly bear nation when we, when we arrive to Montana. On the 4th of July, they stopped at a creek and they named it Independence Creek. They fired shots and cannon and drank the last of their whiskey uh, as a celebration of Independence Day. And like I mentioned, the most expensive things they took with them, besides the scientific equipment, were Indian presents. 
They spent almost $700 on that, which was a huge amount of money at the time. And you can see the kinds of things that they took. Their first encounter with native peoples occurred near uh, present-day Council Bluff, Iowa, and uh, Omaha, Nebraska. It's named Council Bluff because um, of this council that took place in August of 1804 when they met members of the Oto and Missouri nations. And they had, um, they did their little get together where they would have a military parade. They would show some of the um, cool things they brought along like a magnifying glass and an air gun and things like that. And eventually this ended up being quite nice because the natives invited them to a barbecue. They brought bison and pemmican uh, and melons and um, both of them exchanged different kinds of food and had a, a little get together in August of 1804. The only death of uh, any member of the expedition occurred just north of there when Sergeant Floyd uh, died, likely from a burst appendicitis or some kind of an internal organs malfunction. Uh, and he was buried in a site called Floyd's Bluff near Sioux City, Iowa. As they moved upstream, they encountered uh, the mighty Lakota Nation. Uh, the Lakotas are the western band of, of the Teton Sioux and are comprised of seven main bands. Um, <clears throat> this encounter was one that was filled with difficulty because the Lakotas already had trading relationships with the British. And the story that Lewis and Clark were telling that they wanted all of the tribes to become peaceful. They wanted to build fortifications for the fur trade where they could exchange goods. Um, did not sit well with the Lakotas because they already had the trade goods that they needed and they didn't want their neighbors to acquire any of them. So they tried to prevent Lewis and Clark from proceeding forward. They took hold of the tow rope and held their boat. Clark uh, grabbed his sword and uh, he said, we are not a bunch of women. We will defend our, our boat with our lives and makes all of these grand uh, proclamations. But fortunately, cooler heads prevail. And this gentleman, Black Buffalo, will tell everyone to calm down. Uh, and eventually, they give them more gifts and are able to move forward. But this was seen as one of the potential um, obstacles of ascending the Missouri was to either uh, get past the Lakotas or have a confrontation. Now, fortunately for Lewis and Clark, um, after the expedition, Clark will spend a lot of attention and time as Indian agent in formulating a very positive relationship with the Lakotas, and they actually become United States allies up until the 1850s. So for almost 50 years, Clark is able to negotiate um, a, a peaceful um, outcome between the United States and the Lakotas, which is a pretty cool um, thing to study. Further upstream, they come to the earth lodges of the Arikara villages. This is near where the Grand River flows into the Missouri. 
And the Arikaras were a very um, hospitable and prosperous people, um, and they have a very enjoyable stay with them. Lewis and Clark make promises to tribes that on their return trip, if there's anyone from their villages who want to return, um, that they will take them. Unfortunately, one of the men who, go, who decides to do this is an Arikara chief who travels back east and actually dies from disease. And so when the news of that comes back, the Arikaras are greatly disappointed. They, some of them suspect foul play, even though there wasn't anything nefarious that went on. Um, but it ends up being um, a problem that will last until 1823. Uh, and there's actually a war fought between fur traders and Arikaras in 1823 that kind of result from this Arikara leader dying from disease. When they arrive in North Dakota at the Knife River villages, they meet the Mandan and Hidatsa peoples. These villages spread along the river uh, were quite important. Lewis and Clark uh, decided to winter there. It was already November, it was getting very cold. They knew the river would ice over. And so they um, asked the Mandan if they could winter with them and they build a fort and they name it Fort Mandan. While at the fort, um, this is one of, this is the second fort that Lewis and Clark's men construct. Remember they had built one for the winter of 1803-04 down in Illinois. This one is built in uh, North Dakota near present-day Bismarck, and they'll also build one on the Pacific coast for the following winter. So those are the three posts that they'll erect. They have the great fortune of meeting Sacagawea. And even though she had, this was a Shoshone girl who'd been captured or enslaved by the Hidatsas when she was eight or nine years old, uh, she was now a young teenager. She was a plural wife of a Northwest Company trader, Toussaint Charbonneau, <clears throat> and was pregnant with their first child, who Meriwether Lewis delivers during the winter in February. Uh, and she, they name it uh, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. This little baby goes on the expedition with them, uh, along with Sacagawea. So this is an amazing story. Um, they also take her husband along as an interpreter, um, and both of them are important liaisons when they arrive at the Shoshone villages in the Continental Divide. Clark's enslaved man, York, was also big medicine to many tribes. There was a tradition among Plains people that when you were in mourning, you would paint your body with ashes to become black. But when they tried to rub his skin and the ash didn't come off, they thought this was, this was very significant. And so there are lots of interactions between the natives and York that are recorded in the diaries because of this interchange. It was very, very cold in North Dakota that winter. Um, it got below 60 degrees Fahrenheit, below zero, um, before their last thermometer broke. Um, and people were getting frostbitten in places you don't want to be frostbitten and having a really hard time um, trying to keep away from the elements. 
But they did spend time um, forging things that they could exchange for the mandan for corn because the mandan corn pretty much was the main food source for them that whole winter. So they would exchange these, these goods um, for the corn. They also joined the Mandan in pursuing the Lakotas who raided the Mandan village um, in a short foray in February of 1805. One of the Mandan leaders that they become quite close to is a man named Sheheke Shote, known as the Big White or the Big White Coyote. And Sheheke Shote um, is going to be an important figure because on the return journey, he travels back with Lewis and Clark to meet with Thomas Jefferson. And we have the, the documents and records of these interactions between Sheheke Shote and the president. They're quite fascinating to study. But then it takes them two or three years to try to get him home. And I already told you about the troubles they had getting the news of the Arikara leader's death back home. And so to take the the Mandan chief all the way back up to North Dakota became a Herculean effort that required a huge fur company to help transport him back. And so that um, expense from bringing Sheheke Shote, his wife and children back to the Mandans will be one of the factors that causes Meriwether Lewis to become financially indebted. <clears throat> I told you already that they gave a gift of a prairie dog to the president. They also sent him a magpie and they sent him some elk antlers. And these antlers still hang in the entryway of Monticello. If you visited in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, you can see those elk antlers still hanging there. So it's pretty cool uh, that they're still there. Um, they were traveling now upstream in canoes because they they heard from the Hidatsas and Mandans that the Missouri River had a great series of cataracts or falls in which the boat could not proceed past. And so they had to construct these seven canoes to proceed forward. They traveled through be beautiful country in Montana, like the white cliffs of the Missouri that are still a very, uh, favorable um, canoeing and rafting place. I often take um, Lewis and Clark groups on this three-day float trip through the White Cliffs because it's such a stunning place to be. It's just kind of magical. They arrived at a river that flowed into the Missouri and they could not decide which one was the principal stream. And so they decided to have a vote and at this time, they had sent about 25 of the people home on the keelboat from the Mandan villages, and they had 33 members of the permanent party, which included Sakagawea, her baby, and her husband. They arrived at this river, and they had a vote on which was the stream. Was it the one to the right, which was um, kind of muddy and looked just like the Missouri had for a year and a half, or was it the clearer stream to the, to the west. And 31 people voted that it was the stream to the north, the muddy stream. And Lewis and Clark are the only ones who voted that it was the clear stream to the west. Well, they didn't want to make the wrong decision, so they decided to send some groups to 
explore them for a couple days. And so they explored and came back and they gave their reports and they had another vote. Guess what the vote was? Exactly the same, <laughs> 31 to two. Well, they decided to follow the captains because it was, it was their choice and it'd be their responsibility. And fortunately, they chose correctly. As they proceeded up from this confluence of the Mariah's River and the Missouri River, they started to encounter a different landscape on the plains. And Lewis um, forged ahead to make sure they were on the right stream and he was separated from the group. And in a 24 hour period, he was nearly killed by a buffalo bull, a badger or wolverine, a rattlesnake, and a grizzly bear. And that night in his journal, he says, the entire animal kingdom has conspired against me. He was scared out of his mind up near Great Falls, Montana. Fortunately, the bear didn't eat him, so he survived that. And he arrived at the Great Falls, and he wrote that this was such a splendid view he said, I again viewed the falls and was so much disgusted with the imperfect idea which it conveyed of the scene that I determined to draw my pen across it and begin again. But then I reflected that I could not perhaps succeed better than penning the first impressions of my mind. So he's, he's giving this idea that he just can't write down how cool this place is. And eventually the rest of the party arrive and they know how difficult it would be to try to get boats around this. So they know they had to portage. Portage means to take the boats out and take them overland. So they cut down some trees and they make some wheels out of them and they start carting them for 18 to 19 miles across the prairie at Great Falls. Unfortunately, there was lots of prickly pear that was puncturing their moccasins. It was a great pain in the legs and feet and created all kinds of problems. Here's a fellow picking it out of his toes. But eventually they are able to get these um, vessels all the way to the upper portage and there they make camp, but they also run into huge numbers of grizzly bears. The grizzlies were so numerous at the Missouri because Either they could fish at the, um, each fall, each of the falls, because the fish would have a hard time uh, ascending the river there, would gather in the pools. And they also um, feasted on carrion of animals who drowned in the Missouri. And these bears were not afraid of people. And um, this is the only time that the Lewis and Clark expedition ever declares war. Lewis declares war against the grizzly bear nation. Uh, in 1805. They also proceed forward and are excited to meet the Shoshone people. These are um, the tribe of Sacagawea and um, they were very happy to um, to visit with her and, and uh, meet. They meet the flatheads and negotiate trade with horses they meet the Nez Perce and do the same thing. Um, these tribes of the Columbia Plateau were very friendly. They were open to American trade. 
uh, and we're excited to, to welcome the explorers. And they had very good relations with all of these groups. The Nez Perce told them that they were gonna have a difficult mountain crossing. So they traded for more horses and then they made the laborious trek across the Bitterroot Mountains. Had a very tough time of it. They eventually come to Lolo Pass and they see these Rocky Mountains were not a single chain of mountains like they had anticipated, but were mountain range upon mountain range. Uh, it was kind of demoralizing for them, but they proceeded on. After crossing the Rocky Mountains, they arrived at the Weeipe Prairie and uh, met the, another group of Nez Perce who were very friendly to them. And um, there are lots of stories of their interactions together. The Nez Perce agree to keep their horses and Lewis and Clark make more boats so that they can proceed down the um, river to the Columbia River and eventually to the Pacific. And as they shoot the rapids at places like the Dalles, uh, native peoples line up on the banks thinking these crazy white men are gonna crash and we can take whatever floats to the bank, uh, but they make it through. And eventually they arrive at the Pacific Ocean in November of 1805. Now we don't have uh, much more time uh, to discuss their return trip, but I'll um, review that with you when we meet again on uh, Friday. But I want to um, thank you for your attention for today. And if you have any questions, um, I'm happy to entertain them. You need Professor, I have a really quick question. Go ahead. I was wondering if Lewis and Clark, if we know if they were aware that the Spanish were trying to arrest them. Uh, they were not. And in fact, um, one of the fellows that had sent out or told the Spanish that Lewis and Clark were even going was the commanding general of the United States Army. His name was James Wilkinson. And we'll be talking about James Wilkinson as a potential figure in the eventual death of um, Meriwether Lewis. So um, they weren't aware that the Spanish were after them, but um, they, they did learn later that the Spanish had turned back these other expeditions. Great question. Anything else? Well, thanks for your attention. Hope you enjoyed this and uh, we'll talk to you on Friday. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.